The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 34 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network and the House Show proudly present to you this spooktacular time. <laughs> Let's welcome the trio's tag team champions of the world. The master library. Heaven straight out of hellions. Sweet Maddie, trick or treats. And the educator of exorcisms. Collectively known as the Haunted House Show. Enter at your own risk. Halloween Havoc 1995. On today's card, we see Diamond Dallas Pades take on Johnny B. Bad for the WCW World Television Championship. The Zodiac battles Macho Man Randy Savage. Road Warrior Hawk battles Kurosawa. Sabu with the original Sheik takes on Mr. JL. Mang battles Lex Luger. In a tag team match, Brian Pillman and Double-A Arn Anderson battle Ric Flair and Sting. In a monster truck sumo match, the Giant battles Hawk Hogan to someone's impending doom. In another singles match, Randy Savage battles Lex Luger. And then in her main event for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, the Giant battles the champion Hawk Hogan. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Haunted House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Maddie Trick or Treats, Mr. Maddie Treats. It's, you know, the middle of November now, so I guess we can stop with the Halloween antics, but we have to continue watching these Halloween Havocs because like we said on the last show, we're into the meat of them. So I know the educator, you took a big bite of that juicy meat. How was it? How was your your week? How was watching Halloween Havoc 1995? Oh, 95 Halloween Havoc was fantastic. Uh, doing really, really well with the first quarter of school being done. Uh, enjoying, enjoying time, enjoying life, enjoying my Hasbro recollection assi- uh, attempts here. Uh, just got a package today. Seven new Hasbros added to the collection. I'm up to just around 50 now. Ultimate Warrior, Warlord, Papa Shango, Hockey Talk Man, Repo Man, Model Rick Martell, Ravishing Rick Rude. Oh, baby. Let me tell you, I'm enjoying rekindling my youth. That that is excellent. Speaking of rekindling the youth, Educator, today's a big day for you. Oh, what do you mean, baby? The PlayStation 5 is officially released today. We had the Xbox One X. Series X, whatever it's called, released you know two days ago. Um, right. You've been collecting Hasbro's. I have both consoles because 
I like to spend my money on things. I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but uh, <laughs> it pays not to have a, a wife and child when you're in your mid thirties and you, you can just spend your money on wrestling buddies and, and playstations. So I uh, don't know what I'm going to play on the PlayStation, but I, I have one. That's awesome, dude. Very Happy excited. Very. Thank you. One, one of the lucky ones that got, that got that pre-order in, huh? I had the pre-order in. Yes. Uh, my brother wasn't hoarding them like he does with the Hasbro's. <laughs> It's a sore subject. We'll try not to bring it up. Uh, anyways, why don't we move on to the Mast Library, Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how are you doing today? Oh, good. I, I did not pre-order any game systems. Uh, it does remind me I got to pick up my uh, pull list at the comic shop, though. That's about the only thing I pre-order. There's nothing wrong with that, though. Um, so, Kevin, are you still rocking the PlayStation 3? Uh, the Our glorified Blu-ray player? Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Blu-ray. Yeah. Do you do a lot of apps on it? Streaming nope. machine, basically? Nope. Nope. All of our streaming's done through the Roku. The PlayStation 3 is literally just our Blu-ray and DVD player now. You gonna upgrade to a 4K Blu-ray player, get the PS4? No, probably not. Not yet. It is what it is. Out of all the... So you you like the Roku? Is that your favorite streaming? I mean, we have a Roku. Like, I I play around... I think I got, like, 45 or 50 apps I've downloaded onto there. Nice. Anytime, like, a 2B, a Pluto TV... uh, a random thing that has something I might watch once. I keep it on there. And then my wife goes, what the hell is all this? My Netflix app had to redownload. Cause you have all these apps on here that you don't watch. It's like, I don't <laughs> want to forget about them either though. I've, I've, I'm a big fan of the Apple TV. I love the Apple TV. I don't know what it is. I just think the quality of the picture is better than the other streaming services. Um, I had a Roku 4k and I hated it. I didn't, I don't like the, the controller feels weird. Like the little stubby controller. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, I do love my Fire Stick, though, uh, because, well, no comment on how I get my channels through the Fire Stick. But, right, uh, right. Which you can't do with a Roku. Plus, the Fire Stick is the only streaming box that has the New Japan World dedicated app for it. So, a little FYI for you. But, uh, yeah, guys, before we get into Halloween Havoc 1995, I do want to, you know... Uh, when Halloween was over, it's kind of a sigh of relief, right? It's like, oh, spooky season's done. But then, like, it kind of got extended a week because of the election. So it was like, oh, geez, here we go again. Well, another horrific thing happened to me, guys, uh, this past week. So um, I really <sighs> scarred for life. Had to use the uh, eye wash station at work oh, no. to, to really get it out of my eyes at 6 a.m getting your eyes (laughs) no no not that um so at work uh you know it's holiday season we tend to buy gifts obviously uh the store i work at we get a lot of different things we get a lot of one-offs different things like that so pick something up thought it would be good for my mother see if my dad wanted to buy it so uh my parents being old they like the facetime uh, they very enjoy seeing my face when they when they talk to me. Of course, I live three hours away. You know, people like to see their kids, right? Not just hear their voice. So, FaceTime my dad. Rings. It rings. It rings. It probably rings five, six times. Usually he picks it up in the first time. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? He picks it up. And he's shirtless. His face is right there. And I know which room of the house he is in. Oh, God. Because I know what the bathroom wallpaper looks like. Oh, no. And I know exactly where he's sitting in the bathroom. Oh, no. He was on the toilet. 
He was... He dropping a news FaceTime. He, he he's FaceTiming me on the toilet. Oh, no. That's not right, man. I, I go, call me when you're done. And I hung <laughs> up immediately. Is he upstairs or downstairs? <laughs> he was he was it was he was upstairs. Mm. <laughs> he doesn't go to the downstairs one. I Cause, did. Cuz it's off well they've remodeled it since then. So. <laughs> um, cuz it's off the kitchen. So uh we try not to use the downstairs one for that. No, nah, fair. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. You had a, a bathroom off the kitchen, right? Did you have one upstairs too, Kevin, or no? At my mom's? Yeah. Yeah, there's two. Yeah, yeah. You use the upstairs one for all that stuff. Downstairs one just for oh. In and out, baby. the waterworks. If you... I, I go with whatever is more legroom. Yeah, that is true. That, that is true. But yeah, if, um, so like, why FaceTime when you're on the toilet? I don't get that. Because he knew it was you and he thought it'd be funny. It's disgusting. I, I question just because you, you're doing what you're doing, your hands and, you know, cleanliness mm. and ugh. Especially in the Your age point. of COVID. <laughs> Maybe it was difficult. He was going to be there a while. I was like, I may as well have a conversation. <laughs> I forgot a book. Yeah, well, I, I don't have the back of a head and shoulders bottle to read. <laughs> or or or, <laughs> or just read stuff on his phone. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The Entertainment Weekly is out of reach, so I can't <laughs> get to it. You know, it's just technology man you know I, I you know I, I i get freaked out when people talk to me when i hear them going to the bathroom like i i just i don't know it's like that's your private time you don't need to right. discuss things with me that's fine there's a line know know your boundaries man yeah yeah so that was my uh, horrific week guys so hopefully next week's a little bit better and we're out of all of the um horrificness that was the spooky season yeah <laughs> 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 That's what I said. Yeah, I gotta go take a shower now. So, anyways, Kevin, what did you what did you have? Oh, I also had a horrific week. Coincidentally, involves a lot of the same places your dad was at. Oh my lord! I would like to let you guys know, I am officially certified COVID free. Okay, oh. congratulations. Had to get your brain tickled, huh? Did you have it or something? No. So, because here's what my I... thing: Why would you say? To say you're COVID-free, wouldn't that mean you've had COVID to begin with? Now you're free of it? Uh, COVID-clear? Sure. That would be better? Or that? Because I'm just that, saying, if you've never had it, you've never been COVID-positive, I guess. I don't know. Sure. It's just kind of weird, the, the saying. But go on. COVID-clear. COVID-clear? All right. So, Tell anyway. us your story. Is, that, wait, is, COVID, is COVID-clear like Pepsi-clear? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But as opposed to Pepsi free. No, if you want Pepsi, you got to pay for it. Well, either way, no one wants it. So, so uh, Sunday night, late Sunday night, I start feeling very sick. And uh, my wife was here. One of her friends was here. And they hear me rush to the bathroom and start getting sick. So her friend took off, got me, you know, like uh, Gatorades, ginger ale, medicine, you know, stuff like that. Um, my wife's taking care of me and she's like okay call in sick I was like no 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 I'll be fine in the morning I'm you know I'm thinking like I just ate too much or something like that I'll be fine in the morning just need to get this out I woke up in the morning Monday and I said I'm not moving today <laughs> called into work Crazy. Monday night into Tuesday morning thought I was okay or like Monday night I ate dinner and everything Tuesday all night sick again horribly oh. call in work again 
Tuesday, I'm like, okay, I think I'm doing a little better. Nope, it hits again. Tuesday night into Wednesday morning was the worst. I was laying on the floor in the bathroom debating calling 911. Holy cow, dude. Seriously debating it. Um, Called into work. I was like, I don't know what this is. I keep feeling better, and then it goes away. I'm not sure. I fell asleep. They called me while I'm sleeping and said, uh, hey, you've been out three days because it's a nausea. We would like you to get tested before you can come back to work. I was like, all right, where do you want me to go? They go, well, there's one in Rome that takes two to five days, or there's one in Utica that could give results in 15 minutes. I was like, all right, well, for one, I've heard, I've heard people say 15 minute gives false positives. Also, I'm not positive I can drive a half hour safely right now. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm gonna stay in town. Went, got it done. Still wasn't feeling any better. I, I end up getting the results pretty quick. I had the results like two days later, but I still don't know what it was. I'm assuming it was something I or drank Sunday, which is why I sent that link to you guys about my Mountain Dew excursion, because yeah. it could have been that as well. But so I still don't know what it was. It took until about Saturday morning, which thankfully, because I wanted it to feel better. But I was like, oh my God. So I missed an entire week of work used up my sick time which thank god i had that's crazy man had to get the covid test which i gotta say was not as bad as it had been made out to be okay um it kind of feels like if a bug flew up your nose or uh you jump into you know water at like a a water park or something water shoots up your nose a minute later you're fine you know but you're just like oh geez i got something in my nose you blow your nose a couple times you're fine it was not the like i thought it was gonna be like you said tickling my brain right like you know further back than comfortable no it wasn't that bad um work took care of me just great for everyone was thrilled i was back on monday but oh my god that's the worst sickness i've ever had in my life educator best example do you remember i think it was uh, a christmas where i came down like we went to see hockey we drank with some of your your roommates there and everything and i got sick violently yell at the house yeah and and and, and and one of the bathrooms in the house could not be used for what a week or two oh, because yeah, it's yeah, no, yeah. so the bad from me getting sick in bathroom it. yep like that before an entire week Ugh. that's exactly what it's like that's not but the good news is i don't have covid <laughs> <laughs> there's always a silver lining to silver any story lining there. <laughs> i'm a little disturbed kevin i have no idea until you've seen me fetal position <laughs> curled up on the bathroom floor. You don't know disturbing. <laughs> My wife knows disturbing now, though. That's not right, man. The oddest thing about that is the yum couldn't even be read on your chest. So <laughs> no, yum. no, it was covered up. You were down with the sickness. <laughs> Very disturbed. So, so I, you know what? I think what may have caused the sickness is probably Halloween Havoc 1995, <laughs> yeah. which takes place on October 29th on, in 1995 and October 28th, uh, because that is when the sumo monster truck match was taped. Of course, we were in Detroit, Michigan at the Joe Lewis Arena. 13,000 people in attendance. Our tagline is, there's nowhere to hide. Uh, what an event, guys. What did you think? How did you think this looked? I mean, we were in the same place we were the year before. Um, people seem to be into it still. Absolutely into it. Uh, very corny intro, trying to set up the whole rivalry between Hogan and the Giant. Um, 
Crowd seemed to be very into it. I will say a lot of shots during the pay-per-view where you see in the upper deck, lots of open seats though. Lots of empty seats. So not sure. I'm not too sure about the legitimacy of this 13,000 strong, but a lot of open seats. I mean, that's what happens when you don't have Muhammad Ali and his entire entourage front row. There you go. You can't sell all the scene. I mean, it, it looked nice. Lighting's good. Setup was good. You know, arena looked all right. Um, professional, because God knows we've seen some shows from both companies. They're just like, who did uh, did the truck not show up? What's going on here? This looks bad. Everything looked all right. I had fun watching the show because this one i think we knew uh, we didn't know everything but we knew a lot going into it of what to expect yeah i would say out of all the halloween havocs this is probably the most memorable one yeah out of all of them i mean when you talk about if you bring up halloween havoc there's one match that everyone talks about and that would be from 97 which is Rey mysterio eddie guerrero that's the one match that you know if you that is our canadian stampede match that right. is the match that should be in everyone's top five, should be, you know, number one on the list, yada, yada, yada. But I think if you if brought up Halloween Havoc to someone, the other thing people will remember, obviously, is the Big Pumpkin set, um, <laughs> which Pumpkins, yeah. also. But I, I think this entire card with the sumo wrestling, the Giants debut in the ring, um, the Yeti, like <laughs> this is a wrestle crap pay-per-view that you remember crazy how thin and how flexible the giant was at this young age and like the couple of times he like did a kick and it was like my god if that that's like a super that's a Shawn michaels super kick basically that he's doing trying to hit hogan and just just we're so used to you know what we know of the big show paul white now and you know he's done done a career renaissance and getting in re, you know getting back into shape this past year year and a half, but just then so thin, super lanky, and yeah, just just crazy to see how how young he was, how inexperienced. Of course, I mean this literally is his debut match, um, and uh, ends up winning the title at the end, which we'll get to. Well, there, there's a lot of stuff on here. Let's bring the Hasbro's back to it. It'd be like if you went to a yard sale and found a box of Hasbro's for a quarter each, and you're just like, do you know what you have here? Do you know the gold that you have here? There's talent on the show that I'm just like, do you know what you have here already that you could be using much better and get more out of? Absolutely. Is there a lot of talent on the show? Uh, Okay, Giant looks fantastic here. And if he was actually, oh, I don't know, trained, that would be crazy. I understand Giant looks fantastic. First match, I was very impressed with someone. Who only got better. Well, the first match, but then just if you start going, well, when we go through it, we will, we will go through. I will not hear you talk ill of Kurosawa. So anyways, why don't we, so (laughs) we're greeted by, of course, Tony Schiavone, Bobby, the brain Heenan are on the call. So the monster trucks are already warming up. Is, is that what's going on here? They're already running against each other, trying to fake each other out. Number one question I have is why monster trucks? I don't know if there was some sort of deal. Uh, it, it sounded like that the guy who originally built and created Bigfoot was responsible for creating at least Hogan's monster truck, if not both of them in reality. We end up seeing him being a part of 
uh, the guy that supposedly built these uh, machines, he ends up being a part of the commentary team when the whole sumo match is happening. So I don't know if this was like a Turner deal with this gentleman or whatnot, but just more exposure, I guess. You know, at, at one point we ended up having the WCW NASCAR race car and so on. So just it's it's all WCW branding and getting themselves out there. Uh, same from what I understand, I did. We haven't done it a while, but I did a little bit of like podcast listening and, you know, shoot interviews and stuff like that before this one. It was pretty much as WCW is trying to push their brand out there and it seemed like a real equal to WWE. The more places you get out there, the better. So now they got this deal with the monster trucks, some crossover audience appeal, getting their name out there, getting characters out there. It makes sense. I guess in the mid 90s, obviously, like racing and NASCAR and motorsports must have been hugely popular because you also get you know, Bob Holly spark plug in the WWF and you get the monster trucks here. You get the race cars, as, as you say, the branded race cars. So maybe that was just the thing in the mid nineties that uh, was super popular. But as the entire show goes on, I think to myself, what an odd feud in an odd attraction to have these weird monster monster trucks go at each other. Um, we learned that Brian Pillman and double a Arn Anderson attacked Ric Flair before the event. They're not sure that Ric Flair is going to be able to be in the tag match with Sting. And we also... Wait, um, why would it matter? Didn't Ric Flair... Ric Flair lost the match at the last Halloween Havoc. He's retired. Yeah, he's back now. Oh, okay. Yeah, he got reinstated, man. Where have you been? Oh, all right. I don't know. How we got reinstated, I had a bad week. Yeah, it's been. <laughs> I was on the floor. It's been a week. You've been on the floor. So, uh, so uh, Johnny B. Bad. Then we, Johnny B. Bad's taking on DDP. Um, we get the segment. Of course, I think everyone remembers Johnny B. Bad having a, a flat tire, uh, but Matt, uh, Max Muscle says four flat tires. But Johnny B. Bad didn't say four flat tires. He said a flat tire, and then he lays out DDP with a punch. I think we all kind of remember that. Uh, then we go right into our first match, which is DDP with Max Muscle and Kimberly taking on Johnny B. Bad. But there's two Johnny B. Bads. I'm I'm confused with what is going on here. So we have the television title match. You know, we've got Diamond Dallas Page, who had won the championship, uh, I believe, over the summer. May have been at Fall Brawl. Uh, defeated the Renegade to win the championship title with the Diamond Cutter. We we get some background history of supposedly Johnny B. Bad being in line for a U.S. title shot against Sting. He ends up missing the tapings against Sting, and instead who Johnny B. Bad beat, Brian Pillman, ends up getting that U.S. title shot. Uh, Sting, of course, is successful in defending the title, but post-match, we get the Johnny B. Bad uh, coming in, talking about he had car trouble, blah, blah, blah. Why couldn't Mean Gene's really ha hammering it down? Why couldn't you call? So on. And we got DDP just rubbing it in his face that, hey, you're a moron. You you know, you're, you're, you're blowing opportunity. And then Max Muscle accidentally slips about, hey, you know, it's too bad that you, you had four flat tires. And then this sets up the groundwork for uh, for this particular match. Also, at the same time, there is a storyline going on where DDP has supposedly reinvented himself as he's come into an inheritance of some 13 plus million dollars. And ever since this inheritance, now all of a sudden he is becoming a much more uh, aggressive individual. I, I just love this cheesy, over-the-top version of Diamond Dallas Page. 
I was always a big Page fan. I like what he became, but this is just such a cartoon. And it's clear he's loving it and having a blast too, which helps. There was um, on Eric Bischoff's podcast, he said DDP was like a collection of gimmicks. It was too much. Less is more. And he's doing too much. I'm like, okay, yes, he wasn't going to improve. He wasn't going to become, you know, diamond cutter and world champion all with what he's doing here on this show. But considering he used to be a manager, throw everything out there, get noticed. I think he's doing a great job here. No, absolutely. And you could see the charisma of DDP just flying off, you know, off the screen. And just to think about where his career goes, it's one of those things where obviously in the 1994 episode last week, when we were talking about where the Brutus, the brother Brutai heel turn goes, and then to see him this year in match number two to where we know DDP is going to go, it's going to be fun to kind of watch him grow as a character, get more, even more confident than what he is and really hone his craft. So, uh, so anyways, why don't we get started? Educator, why don't you go ahead and break down the first match? So interesting entrances for both competitors. We have Diamond Dallas Page coming into the ring, sporting the, the uh, WCW television title. He's coming in the ring with the Diamond Doll, who in real life is his wife, Kimberly. It's an interesting uh, set of mannerisms that she's displaying, very similar. And it's a very similar setup to, uh, you know, Mark Marrow and Sable in WWF that we've already talked about in, in your house series. He also has his walking back up with Max Muscle. So he's down in the ring. Then we have Johnny B. Bad, whose music plays. Um, and we see supposedly Johnny B. Bad coming to the ring, but his back is to the camera. He's got his, you know, glitzy robe on about having a bad day, and he's slowly walking backwards to the ring. So, you know, Diamond Dallas Page is paying attention to that. And then we get a camera shot showing on the opposite side that the real Johnny B. Bad character already in his gear, ready to go, hops the rail, gets into the ring, and just immediately starts attacking Diamond Dallas Page. Attacking Diamond Dallas Page so that... Hot tag to Hellion! Let's Whoa! Whoa, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. It is now time for the Kevin Hellion's Halloween Havoc Breakdown. Oh, God, because you did the one last week where I'm like, okay, you got going for a minute and then the hot tag. And so this one, I was like, all right, and there's some terrible choices coming up here. I was like, it's going to be one of these. Like, there, there's a there's a, there's a batch here we could get through in like five minutes. I was sure. All right. I actually have a lot of notes for this one, too. I'm not saying they're good notes, but I have a lot of notes. Okay, as the hot tag of the week for any new listeners. As I watch the shows, I just write down random notes to kind of give myself things to go off of when we discuss it on the podcast, little notes for myself. I don't know which match these guys are going to pick, obviously, ahead of time, so my notes are the same for every match. Just random thoughts I have while watching it. DDP with Kimberly and Max Muscle, DDP TV champ versus Johnny B. Bad. Does Kimberly look prettier here? That's not bad. Real Johnny through the crowd. Where did a metal bucket come from? So much character in this match. Hip toss into a cover. Page is huge. DDP asking for a 10, which is cool because that 10 kind of becomes the diamond later on. Page is so entertaining. Pancake, like a flat pile driver. Pedigree. Page locks on reverse chin lock. 
getting fans Max gets the fans to chant DDP, but it's to give Johnny B. Bad his comeback. Well, wait, maybe not. Paige stops him. Back to the rest hold. Paige kicking his legs up to get more twerk on the rest hold. Paige's psychology is great. Bad with the wrist lock. DDP stands up. Max muscle with the assist. Max distracts the ref. Paige takes off wrist tape. Chokes bad. Diamondell Kimberly doesn't approve of Paige's actions. Max's legs are absurd. Paige in top wrist lock screams for Max again. Does Paige call Johnny bad man or woman? Crowd popping for bad's comeback. Kimberly puts up a 10 for bad. Powerbomb by Johnny B. Bad. Bulldog DDT thing, the diamond dream. Bad grabs the rope, stops the diamond cutter. Bad and Paige over the top. Bad day over the top takes out Max and Paige. Bad day part two when Paige kicks out. Max grabs bad, reversal. Bad kicks Paige into Max. Max clotheslines Paige. Bad pins Paige. New TV champ. Hell of a match. Kimberly is smiling. And that has been your <laughs> Kevin Hallian's Halloween Havoc breakdown. Um, so I, I have to say, I think the most interesting thing about your notes is that you comment on Max Muscle's legs, but not Kimberly's. You didn't see hers as well. <laughs> okay, okay. I just wanted to. I found it interesting during the midway through the match that Bobby Heenan on commentary is talking about how DDP winning that the money, the $13.1 million, how so much more aggressive he's become, uh, you know, like a new man. It, he predicts how DDP is going to become U.S. champ one day. I don't think anybody even like, can you imagine if you just seeing this for the first time and just not knowing, do you see diamond Dallas page as a world champion? Do you see no. him becoming a huge, huge integral part to WCW in 96, 97? It, it's the, the man had just had an explosion um, and just grinding it out, grinding it out. My few notes, the, the sit-out powerbomb by Johnny B. Bad for a near fall was really, really sharp-looking. Diamond Dallas Page reverses a hip-lock attempt, hip attempt off of the ropes and doing a di- that DDT, which, you know, Shivani called it a bulldog-like DDT, the Diamond Dream. I just, I, it was really smooth transition. The bad day front flip plancha over the top rope, taking out both guys. That was a really nice spot. Max Muscle with his weak, you know, double axe handle setup that was a clothesline and, you know, ducking, you know, Johnny B. Bad ducking and then hitting Page. Clear his day in front of the ref and just, he just hits that clothesline and then Johnny B. Bad knocks, you know, Max Muscle out with like a shot to the back of the ear and he flops down and then just covers Page for the pin. They, they kind of sold it all, and then in a post-match interview later in the night, how, you know, he sold it as, you know, his dream was to be champion. He had been television champion in the past. Yeah. You know, he had a, a different version of the championship belt, in fact, um, the, the Lord Steven Regal version of the title. So, you know, it's it's disappointing for me that Bad didn't do couldn't do more. And this was right around the time where his contract was about to expire. He ends up having a series of house show matches where he exchanges the TV title back and forth with Lex Luger. And then Luger eventually keeps the title. But, you know, very soon. I mean, think about this. This is October of 95. 
he's debuting at WrestleMania 12 in a backstage skit, you know, sp- dealing with Mark Merrow or dealing with Triple H and his real life wife Sable. So near the end of Johnny B. Bad's run and bigger things to come when he transitions over to WWF in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why don't we move on to match number two on the night? Of course, it is Brother Brutai, now known as the Zodiac, uh, taking on the Macho Man. And um, what a match, guys. This was oh, uh, five star. Can I ask, how did all these Halloween Havocs are making me want to do is to go back and rewatch the Nudgeon of Doom storyline because yes, how did <laughs> how did Brutus, Brother Brutai, get to be the Zodiac? Like, what is was he under a spell? What is the storyline here? Any idea? Uh, I remember, and maybe it's my revisionist thinking about this. So there was the whole. Three Faces of Fear that we discussed that ended up being the Starcade 94 main event where Hogan went against, you know, the Butcher at the time. And then at one point he ended up re-changing his name. He was the man with no name and, and so on. Then there was an apparently like he was friends again with Hogan, but Hogan then sent him to the Dungeon of Doom to do covert stuff. And to kind of be like a, a messenger kind of deal. I know this is I <laughs> it's think so it's ridiculous it like this. But it, it this was is just, all yeah. this is wanting me to do is because it is so cheesy. It's so ridiculous. It makes me really want to rewatch it. Yeah. I, in all honesty, like every bit in piece of it. And maybe that's something that I, I wish the WWE network would do is pull out certain storylines and what let you watch each segment, whether that's from a nitro and then this was on like Saturday night. And then this was on the pay-per-view. That would be a great feature to have to the WWE network. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just crazy because at post this, we, we see nothing of Brutus until, uh, you know, he ends up becoming a face again he ends up pairing up with Kimberly at one point as like the booty man, I think, at some point. And then uh, he's just gone for a while, and then he just comes back as the disciple when Hogan's got the NWO. It looks completely different. I mean, it looks very different with the facial hair. Like, it, you didn't even know it was him. It's crazy. So, anyways, you want to break down this uh, barn burner of a match? I think the most exi- <laughs> exhilarating thing is the fan that jumps in the ring, By and far. that there's the security is the slowest security I've yeah. ever seen. Referee Randy Anderson, like a boss, 112 pounds of him holding this fan down. Um, interesting. That's, you know what? You know what's funny about that is that's what happened when a fan jumps into our podcast, and we have to have Crone Meltzer separate yeah, them. Exactly. <laughs> Crone Meltzer is our Pee Wee Anderson. That's right, baby. So, uh the Zodiac, who is, you know, Brutus the Barber Beefcake or whom, whatever, incarnation. He, I don't know if you guys realize the music that he came out to, and I don't think this was a dub. I think this was his music. It actually ended up becoming what was Rey Mysterio Jr.'s first music when he originally arrived in WCW in, like, early 96. So he comes out for his intro macho man randy savage comes out for his intro interesting that during his walk to the ring the ring girl ends up like calling him over and you know he gets gives her a big old hug she even sticks out her cheek to for a kiss on the cheek but macho man ends up snubbing her uh, not actually lays a cheek uh, kiss on her cheek 
Right at the beginning of the match, we see Savage attacking the Zodiac. He ends up driving his head in the turnbuckle. He does a punch to the face and then an eye gouge. We see Randy Savage begin to choke the Zodiac over the top rope. And right around this time, we see this fan who jumps had must have jumped over the barrier or whatnot, now jumps up onto the ring apron. And then he climbs through the ropes into the ring and he's trying to get to Randy Savage for some reason. We see referee Randy Anderson double arm or, you know, bear hug him to try to hold him back. He's just that Randy Anderson's an absolute beast for stopping this fan as it took, it seemed like forever for security to rush to the ring to get the guy out of the ring. And I don't know if it was an audible or if the match had planned this way, but Savage and Zodiac end up going to the floor and the camera pans away from the ring so that security can deal with the fan. Uh, they go to the floor and they start to go back and forth. We see Savage ra- ramming the Zodiac into the uh, guardrail headfirst uh, two or three times. Zodiac then rebounds and rams Randy Savage shoulder first into the ring post. Back into the ring, we see the Zodiac body slam Randy Macho Man Savage. He climbs up to the second rope and and leaps off or really steps off of the second rope for one of the weakest looking splashes, forearm drops. I'm not sure what it was, but it was just a botched fall over maneuver from the Zodiac trying to hit the Macho Man. And unfortunately, as bad as it was, Mike Macho Man didn't really follow up with it. Didn't like drop a knee or body slam him again. Macho Man just climbs to the top rope and does more of a step off elbow drop from the top rope. And uh, for the big one, two, three victory over the Zodiac. This is certainly very, very different from the 89, 1989 few that they had. Uh, from Saturday night's main event, setting up the whole SummerSlam match that they ended up having. So uh, apparently it wasn't audible by Savage to go take the action away from where that fan incident was happening, uh, take the fan's eyes away from it, take the camera angle away from it. I love how the fans are popping for the guy getting taken out, the fan getting taken out, and the announcers try to cover it for, listen to the fans cheer this in ring excitement. Uh, Zodiac was not actually scheduled for this match. It was supposed to be Macho Man versus Kamala, who was in Dungeon of Doom at the time. Apparently, Kamala found out he was going to lose and said, well, screw you, and just didn't show up. So then they had to put Zodiac in there instead. It's At first, I thought, considering the longer story of the night, which is if Macho Man wins his match and if Lex Luger wins his match, that Macho Man and Lex Luger will have a match against each other later in the night. So I thought, oh, sure, give Macho a short match then saves his energy for the match against Luger later. Then Luger goes out and has a long first match. I was like, well, that idea is out the window. And I thought that was weird, too, because in the storyline, Luger is basically turning heel. Mm -hmm. So you think you would give the heel the shorter match, the babyface the longer match to get sympathy for the babyface. Right, absolutely. And that, that certainly didn't play out to be the case. Yeah, it was just, it, it's a nothing match. So it's just crazy to think, though, that Brother Brutai was in the show closing angle a year ago, and now he wasn't even supposed to be on the card. Yeah, now he's, now he's in the bed. Yeah, the now he's a zebra. So, um, so, anyways, Mean Gene has the scoop, guys. Uh, Jimmy Hart is talking to an old associate of his. Do you have any idea who this could have been if you do the timelines at all, or if it was just. 
uh, clickbait back in the day. Probably just clickbait, shilling the hotline, trying to get as many people to call and find out as possible. Yeah. Um, so Mean Jeans uh, does a little thing with Johnny B. Bad. Um, and then we get a video of Road Warrior Hawk breaking his arm. And then we go into match number three, which is Kurosawa with Colonel Robert Parker taking on Hawk. And my one note is what the hell's going on here? Why is this, he, why is this on the card? I don't get it. I I don't know. Uh, this, I mean, this wouldn't even really make a Clash of the Champions special. This is like a WCW Saturday night kind of deal. Not sure what they were trying to do. If they're trying to start to build the Japanese presence. I mean, you know, WCW was known for the... A uh, whole Japanese contingent eventually making their way over. I don't believe Kurosawa was a part of that group when Sonny Ono ended up becoming a more prominent figure on TV. Uh, here we have Colonel Robert Parker with his newest acquisition, his newest guy that he's managing. And they're trying to get him over by having him be a legend like one of the Road Warriors. And unfortunately, and I don't blame kurosawa whatsoever i mean he had a pretty cool looking like back body drop driver move that he ended up hitting on hawk during the match just the finish it just was not good at all i i guess it was just part of that new japan um talent exchange and it was hey let's take some guys from japan we that are either already at a high level or that we think could be send them over let them learn an american style of wrestling and then bring them back here with that style so kurosawa was just next on that list um hawk is just you know unfortunately kind of hawk of this era i guess and uh, god it's like when it started i thought oh maybe this will be good and then nope no absolutely so uh so educator you want you want to break down this one yeah not much to break down we got referee nick patrick uh you know you know refing the action here we see road warrior hawk attacking kurosawa with forearms and he hits the ropes and does a running shoulder block off of the ropes to knock kurosawa down we see Hawk with an impressive-looking Rude Awakening like neckbreaker onto Kurosawa, and then he does that jumping, leap, uh, leaping, you know, winding fist drop onto Kurosawa's forehead. He ends up getting a two-count from referee Nick Patrick. We see a bunch of chops and stomps by Hawk to Kurosawa. We see a turnbuckle Irish whip and Hawk running in for the charge. But Kurosawa moves out of the way, and and Hawk ends up burying his shoulder into the turnbuckle itself. We see Kurosawa hit a tilt-a-whirl-like slam and then a power bomb onto Hawk, and uh, uh, or I should say, I'm sorry, yeah, tilt-a-whirl slam and a power bomb to Kurosawa. I should say, Hawk then ends up hitting the ropes. And Colonel Robert Parker does a weak leg grab. Actually, he does at least grab the correct guy, his opponent's uh, legs, as opposed to Sid for that we've talked about from a previous episode. So must be he got his contacts in that day, his working contacts for the match. Um, at one point, we have Kurosawa uh, does this unique uh, mo- uh, body slam to uh, Road Warrior Hawk uh, after he did a chop. He climbs up to the top rope and I guess channels his inner macho man and goes for an elbow drop off the top rope and ends up missing. 
Hawk hits a running clothesline uh, to knock Kurosawa over the top rope and onto the floor. At one point, we see Hawk following out onto the floor where he actually does a running diving clothesline from the apron to Colonel Robert Parker to try to take Parker out of the equation. We get the men brawling back into the ring. Kurosawa throws Hawk into the ropes. And this was a, a cool-looking move, and I really, I'm not sure what to call it. He picks up Hawk as if he's doing a back body drop, but ends up cradling Hawk and falling back on top of him, almost like it was a back body drop like driver, where his back ends up landing on Hawk's sternum, and then Hawk's back ends up hitting the canvas. It was a, just a really cool-looking maneuver. And then we see the finish of the match, where Kurosawa hits a fireman's carry, into a Samoan drop, and then he grabs Hawk's legs to drag him closer to the ropes. He dangles his foot over the ropes, and then Colonel Robert Parker kind of leans down and grabs up onto Kurosawa's legs to give extra leverage, and the referee counts a one, two, three, and there's like no crowd response, no crowd heat, no nothing whatsoever, and Kurosawa wins the match with a weak-looking finish, Samoan, Samoan dro- uh, drop, with the legs on the ropes for leverage. One, two, three. There's that moment at the start. Hawk comes right in. He gets right at it. They start fighting. Neck breaker. You know, a two count and all. It's like, oh, wow, this is going fast. Uh, Hawk's a big guy. Kurosawa's a big guy. I was like, oh, geez, I'm going to be surprised here. They're going at it. And then it just, God, just goes downhill. And the, the ending seemed out of nowhere, too. And, and a weak ending at that. I was just... I can understand the previous match being bad because it wasn't planned, but now we got two bad ones in a row and the next one doesn't do anything to help it at all. Yeah. But like you said, Kevin, there's a lot of talent on the show, so (laughs) we're not starting off with, uh, with all the talent that you have, you have said so far. So I didn't say the talent was utilized. Well, I think the next match has two great talents. The match sucks. Uh, I'm pretty sure at this point we already have four WWE Hall of Famers that have been in matches. So you simmer down over there, treats. Now he's doing the math and trying to figure out, oh, crap, he is right. There are four Hall of Famers that are in here right now. Okay. Um, so the Hall of Fame that the Bellows are part of? Hey, that did not happen. There was no event. I don't remember any rings being passed on. You silence yourself, sir. Hall of Fame elect. Poor Nikki. She can never get the ring she wants. So. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways why don't we move on to what is the highlight of the night and that would be the mean gene and macho man interview um this is just the greatest thing you guys gotta watch this if, if you don't watch these with us for the one thing that macho man makes fun of mean gene's mustache calls it crooked and then mean gene makes fun of his beard i don't well, this, this is fantastic i, I fantastic my only comment is man cocaine is a hell of a drug because it's just nuts the banter back and forth between the two see you saw it before i even got there you're like you you gotta see this so i was waiting for it <laughs> yeah rewound it watched it again it ranks up there with the tony shivani intro yeah. yeah it's like the little tidbits that you see you know what i mean like the little just a little bit it's fantastic they, they seem like they're having fun then we move on to match number four of the night which is mr jl taking on sabu with the original chic what a random match this was. I think I said to you guys off air last week, Sabu's on this card? Question mark. Like, I don't remember Sabu really being in WCW. Didn't really fit at the time. Um, and this is 
you know, knowing that Mr. JL, JL is Jerry Lynn and remembering that I really liked him. Like I thought, oh, Mr. JL, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. But this match was sloppy. Very sloppy. It was a matter of just spot after spot after spot. Not really any storytelling. Uh, I think that in the end, the Sheik with the fireball, I think it was a missed spot that was supposed to happen earlier in the match. So now the Sheik's like, well, crap, I got to throw the fireball anyway, and the match is over. So they end up doing it after the pinfall. Um, Yeah, just absolute, just bananas, just botch move here and there, and just each guy just trying to hit just zany out-of-the-world stuff onto each other. Yeah, Sabu apparently had about a four- to five-week run in WCW, a few matches on Nitro and ended up getting one pay-per-view match before he ends up returning to ECW the following month at the November to remember as a surprise. Yeah, I think it was just Sabu had that crazy buzz around him, like just cusp of the internet, tape trading days, and Bischoff thought, all right, let's hire the guy with some buzz, but then who do you put him in the ring with? You're not going to put Sabu against Hogan. You know, you're not going to put him against Hogan's buddies that he brought over there. So Jerry Lynn's probably sitting in the back like, listen, dude, I don't have a match tonight. I know how to wrestle his style. Put me out there. Okay, guys, you got three minutes then. All right, whatever. It's better than nothing. Do you think the Sheik's fireball is because he had to take a bump? Oh, my gosh. What a bump. (laughs) That was fantastic. Yeah, that was crazy. Was he 70 years old, I think? Yeah, absolutely not. And he was clearly just... In the you know wrong place, wrong, wrong time. Wrong place, I mean, the wrong time. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. Absolutely. But, so you know, being a professional, he sold it like a champ too, and went right down. Reminded me, you know, of Harley Race taking his bumps. You know that we've talked about as well. You just it's you're a part of the show, you're a part of the act, and you, you sell it to protect the business. And you know he did great. You know what they say: it ain't ballet. It ain't ballet. <laughs> All right, educator, why don't you break down this uh, slop fest? So we see Sabu essentially storming the ring after Mr. JL, who again is Jerry Lynn uh, under a mask, storms the ring and JL uh, ends up hitting an enziguri uh, to start off the match that will end up knocking Sabu back down to the floor. We see Sabu hitting an acai moonsault out from the side of the ring towards the entrance that ends up hitting both JL and his uncle, the Sheik, and they both go down. We see Sabu at one point running uh, along ringside and he dives towards JL, but JL ends up ducking and Sabu just crashes and burns and misses his attempt to uh, tackle him, I guess. We see JL hitting a top rope crossbody from the corner turnbuckle onto Sabu, who's still down on the floor. Sabu tries to do a moonsault off of the top rope back in the ring to hit JL, but ends up missing JL. JL ends up climbing up to the rope immediately after, and he is successful in hitting one. We see JL hitting a sit-out powerbomb to Sabu and ends up getting a two-count from referee Randy Anderson. JL ends up Irish whipping Sabu into the corner, and he follows in uh, to try to get to Sabu, but Sabu ends up moving, causing JL to crash into the turnbuckle pad. Sabu ends up hitting an Arabian face buster from the apron. So he ends up climbing over the out to the ring apron. He does basically a front flip over the top rope. The intent is for him to drop a leg onto JL's across his sternum and his throat. But JL was too close to the rope. So he ends up doing more of a back senton onto JL's body as a part of that Arabian face buster. He ends up getting a two count from the referee. 
We see Sabu, for whatever reason, trying to climb the top turnbuckle as if he's trying to go for another moonsault. But JL follows him and ends up doing a belly-to-back suplex uh, from Sabu being on the turnbuckle back into the ring. And JL holds a bridged and attempt for a pinfall count, only gets a two count. We see JL climbing the top rope only for Sabu to punch him down into a sitting position. Sabu then climbs up to the top rope with him, gets on into his shoulders, and then does a roll around victory roll for a two count uh, from referee Randy Anderson. Sabu climbs a turnbuckle again as if he's going for another moonsault only for JL to drop kick him off of the turnbuckle that sends Sabu crashing uh, from the top rope onto the floor. Sabu does recover and ends up clotheslining JL over the top rope back into the ring. And then Sabu does his Arabian backflip press where he drops his legs over the top rope of a slingshot, causing him to do like a moonsault like press uh, for the one, two, three victory. Um, right after the referee calls for the bell, after the pin, we see the remnants of the Sheik launching a fireball into the ring on towards uh, JL and ends up hitting JL kind of near the face in the chest area post-match. And that was it for that slap fest between the two. I, I can't believe you got that much out of it, honestly. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's just, it, it's a cluster. There's nice, I moonsault. There's the spot in the guardrail. There's there's uh, Sabu's up against the guard around the corner, and it's obvious he's waving the referee off because Sabu can see JL climbing the top, getting ready to come down, but the ref can't from his angle. There's a lot of like good protecting everyone happening for such a quick, you know, sloppy spot fest of a match. Um, no, no storyline, no psychology. Rushed the fireball spot. Like uh, honestly, the whole thing just seemed like you're watching something on fast forward. And I cared just as much as something I would watch on Fast Forward. Yeah, it was very disappointing, uh, to be honest with you, when you look at the card and you're like, what could be a really good match? Ooh, that could be really good. And then, nope, it is not really good. (laughs) So, um, But after that, we get a segment where we are looking back and we're looking at the Taskmaster's lair. We get to see the Yeti break out of ice once again. The, The, quote, insurance of the Yeti. Yeah, I, uh... I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. I no. really don't know why. I think they point, had a name and no idea how to execute it. Yeah. The crowd, the live promo that they end up doing after the fact with the Taskmaster and who is just now the other guy referred to as the master of everything in their in-house promo live in front of the crowd. It, it's just, it's terrible. The crowd is not at all buying into it, is pooping all over this promo. Uh, yeah, it did not translate well for entertaining television. Have the Yeti come out with a fur thing like Pete Dunn used to wear to the ring, but white instead of toilet paper, you know, I don't, I don't understand it. You know, the Yeti wrapped up in toilet paper looked like Kevin last week. So, um, <laughs> oh, I, just, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so anyways, we get mean Gene with Hawk Hogan. They're giving away a Harley. Is Hogan part of the NWO right now? What is going on? Doesn't it look like it? It, Oh, it's crazy. The prequel to his time in the NWO. uh, You know, he's he's going to his dark side here because of how he was attacked and taken out by the giant on previous episodes of Nitro. I I must say this promo from Hogan 
this, you know, in the whole Harley Davidson and and the the WCW teaming up with Harley Davidson to give away this Har this this motorcycle, and and then him talking about his promo. This promo that Hogan does here has to be the interview that Shawn Michaels channeled to do his spoof on the Larry King Live when they were doing their 2005 feud. Oh. I'm going to ask you guys a question. How many times did Hogan say brother during this interview? Oh, I don't even know. Any guesses? I, 24. I was going to say 10 until you said 24. 18. Meet you right in the middle. Jeez. Hogan says brother 18 times during this interview to mean Jane during this promo. It is crazy. So this absolute this has to be what what Michaels was channeling, doing his Larry King live spoof and saying brother every other word. Uh, it's just ridiculously Hulk Hogan over the top. Yeah, it's something. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's something. Um, so, anyways, we follow that up with World War Three commercial, which, ironically enough, Kevin, you've predicted NXT will be doing a World War Three pay per view. So, no, oh, all right. I don't know how you're going to fit three rings in the Capitol Wrestling Center. They will that night. <laughs> you know, once Elise listens and all that good stuff. So. Unless, they, unless they get like little independent 12 by 12 rings. In there. Yeah. So, so why don't we follow that up with match number five of the night, which is once again, some more people with a bright future ahead of them. Some key pieces, as Kevin said, we have Mang with the Taskmaster taking on Lex Luger. Uh, what did you guys think of this one? The golden spike comes out. It's a terrible finish. This pay-per-view is just not that good. A couple of things that stand out towards the start of the match. Luger is billed at 268 pounds. That To me, that just seemed crazy off. He just looks ridiculously thin here. And I don't know if you noticed it during Luger's entrance. They did a shot of the set, and one of the tombstones says Crockett on it. Yep. <laughs> Must be a, a, a shot to the old Jim Crockett promotions and everything that, you know, the bad blood, I guess, that exists between, you know, Turner buying out the Crockett's to create the this version of WCW. Um, the match itself, interesting, sad finish, unfortunately, trying to lay, lay a little credence to the storyline of, of Luger. Uh, possibly turning heel, the Taskmaster trying to get convince him to come over to the Dungeon of Doom. Um, not not a fan of the finish. I thought it was a decent match back and forth between Ming and Luger. It felt like buying time until they were told to go for the finish, though. Like, it really, the whole point of this match was to do that crazy finish to get the longer storyline going. But otherwise, they're just out there stalling for time. And you know it's an exciting match that everyone's into when the announcers flat out stop talking about it and instead talk about Bobby Heenan's deal to bring over Japanese wrestlers. Kevin, I'm still waiting for this young talent that you said was all over the show. It's Sabu, JL, DDP. Yeah, DDP's not young here, man. <laughs> I'm sure he's already in his 40s. The giant... It's something. So, uh, something. Educator, why don't you go ahead and break this one down? So to start that match off, we got Luger attacking Ming with a bunch of punches. He ends up driving Ming's head into the turnbuckle ten times while the crowd is counting along. We see Lex Luger capable of doing a double leg takedown and then uh, cradles the legs and ends up catapulting Ming uh, into the turnbuckle. 
Ming does recover and hits a few uh, uh, kicks to uh, Luger and ends up doing a small package to Luger and ends up getting a two count from referee Nick Patrick. Uh, we see an Irish whip into the corner, and Meng follows in to charge to Luger, but Luger ends up picking up his boot, and Meng crashes into Luger's boot. Luger then follows up and hits a running clothesline, sending Meng over the top rope and onto the floor. Uh, on the floor, Luger uh, ends up running Meng into the post a few times, and he starts working on Meng's shoulder, trying to sell that he's trying to work the shoulder down, perhaps so that Meng can't use the uh, golden spike. Or the tongue and death grip. I think right now the gimmick was he was just doing the golden spike as the finish. Uh, Luger and Ming end up exchanging punches and chops back and forth. Luger attempts to do a belly-to-back suplex, but Ming ends up turning his body midway through and ends up doing like a decent-looking cross body onto Luger, who uh, lands on top of Luger, ends up getting a two-count. Ming ends up picking up Lex Luger and does a tombstone-like shoulder-breaker. And then Meng is working on Luger down on the canvas and is choking him down uh, in the corner and on the canvas with his foot. Meng ha- hits Luger with a stiff-looking pile driver for a two-count. And then, frustrated that he couldn't get the pinfall, continues to do a chokeout to uh, Luger, squeezing around the throat out of frustration. Then we see Ming working a reverse chin lock that eventually Luger uh, gets out of using elbows to the abdomen to eventually escape. Ming hits a belly-to-back suplex on the Luger for a two-count and then tosses Luger out onto the floor. And the commentators are uniquely talking about why the fact that you know Luger being out on the floor right next to Kevin Sullivan, why isn't the taskmaster attacking Luger? He's almost having a conversation with Luger. He must be, you know, in the guise of, you know, he wants Luger to join and commit to the Dungeon of Doom, but Luger's not willing to do so. Eventually Luger climbs back into the ring. Meng tries to do an Irish whip and to set up for a drop kick, but Luger ends up holding onto the ropes, causing Meng to crash down on the canvas. We see Luger hitting a front suplex onto Meng, who was standing on the ring apron, bringing him front face suplex back into the ring. Luger then hits three running clotheslines to finally get Meng to drop down all through, uh, onto the canvas. We have a back body drop and two more clotheslines to follow. Luger ends up hitting a power slam to Meng after throwing Meng into the ropes. Ming ends up reca- uh, recovering from this and sets up for the golden spike. And he hits Luger with the golden spike without the ref seeing it on a distraction from Kevin Sullivan. As Ming goes for the pinfall attempt, we see the taskmaster climb into the ring. And before the referee's hand counts to the number three, we see a gentle kick to the shoulder of Lex Luger to break up the pinfall causing Ming to get DQ'd for a DQ win for Lex Luger over Ming. Match goes way too long. Honestly, it could be cut in half, probably. Especially when we got Luger against Savage later. And then considering where the whole Luger storyline is going later in the night, why have a competitive match with Ming, who he's about to be stablemates with, and even teams with the next night on Nitro? Like you're beating the hell out of someone that you're on the same size side as it would have made a lot more sense as like, say a tag match where Luger's barely in the match. You know, it keeps going for the hot tag, but uh, honestly, that's kind of the situation we have in the next match though. 
but just it, it's too long. Ming looks confused the whole time. Ming ends up looking foolish, honestly, with the ending. And Kevin Sullivan just like, no, 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 there's a plan, there's a plan, there's a plan. It's, I don't hate the overall idea of what side is Luger on, but this execution just is not working. Also, too, if all you're going to do is just gently kick Luger to have him win the match, why not do that in the first minute of the match? Yeah, yeah just be like, oh, I screwed up. Oh, no, we got to go back. Oh, well, true. And it would, like I said earlier, make more sense than if... Because this match should have been the first match, and then you put the Macho match later in the card yeah, where he actually takes on the Zodiac for a longer match, and then you have the whole mystery all night. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't Plus, whatsoever. we have the turn in the next match. Like, the booking is just doesn't make sense. There's, I don't know. So anyways, we get Mean Gene uh, interviewing the Giant. And then we go right into match number six on the night, which is double A Arn Anderson with flying Brian Pillman taking on Sting with his partner, Ric Flair. Educator, what'd you think of this one? I mean, how could you not see the turn coming? I mean, Sting (laughs) has tagged with Flair and, you know, this has happened before. How Sting could not see the 38th time that Flair is going to turn on him. It's just it's unfortunate. It's an interesting storyline selling the idea that, you know, the horsemen or at least Arn Anderson and Flying Brian had attacked Flair sometime during the, the earlier in the day before Sting had even got there. So when Sting comes out by himself and is essentially forced into a handicap match, you know, something is definitely a mess. And then when Flair comes down in his street clothes, the crowd is just popping hard for it. And then when Flair finally gets into the match, we get the turn that everyone was expecting. And we've got the pseudo rebirth of the four horsemen, at least this, the 1995 incarnation. I mean, everyone sees it coming. Sting actually works very well to make the match believable, to fight off both men, to make the interaction with flair believable uh pillman not very good in this match overall uh don't know if he was already hurting or 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 not at 100 percent or what but it's again it's stalling to set up the more important storyline that's coming at the end of the match here yeah, a lot of the stuff that Pillman, you know, everybody remembers Pillman being plagued by the the big accident. He hasn't had that big accident yet where he's had to have his ankle fused. I mean, this happened in the spring of 96, right before he ended up signing with WWF. So, um, yeah, it's Pillman kind of looks out of place here. In a few weeks, he starts to develop the loose cannon persona, which, you know, he really isn't doing too, too much about with yet. But he things do look a little bit off, at least the, the, the tags. There's a lot of tags back and forth between AA and, and Pillman. Um, I like that one part in the match. Arn Anderson specifically, uh, because Sting is making the comeback uh, during the part where it's basically a handicap, and Arn Anderson just whips Sting's head into Pillman, knocking Pillman down on the canvas. Mm-hmm. And commentary even talks about how that's an old... Anderson trick that Lars and Gene Anderson used to do or only and Gene Anderson used to do just no 
care in the world about their partner. They're just doing it to to make their opponent get their opponent down so that they can get the upper hand advantage. Yeah, the the flare turn obviously comes. I mean, it's it's so easy to see. My question is, you know, flare turns. He starts attacking Sting. And then Flair's declared the winner of the match with Sting by DQ. Yeah, wow. technically, yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense why that would cause a DQ. You should have it. So, once again, with the booking, Flair attacks Sting. There's no DQ because he's technically in the match. He's not doing anything illegal. Right. And then Pillman and Anderson pin Sting to get heat that way. Uh, maybe, technically, that the, the beatdown in the ring... But Flair's winning, though. Flair's declared the winner of that. Yeah, but I mean, I guess technically maybe the beatdown that happens because Anderson and Pillman are involved and they're both in the ring, maybe he ends up disqualifying them for a referee's 10 count and not clearing the ring. I don't know. I'm just, it's a stretch. Look at when uh, Ted DiBiase Jr. bought Cody Rhodes and he turned on one tag team partner to win the titles with a different tag team partner. Right. Yeah. Um, the thing that didn't make the most sense to me, or made the least sense, or whatever, in this match is uh, Arn has Sting in like a half crab, and then Brian Pillman is grabbing Arn and pulling backwards, which he's would take the forward. pressure off of the half crab. If anything, yeah. he should be pushing him forward. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, there's just a lot of sloppiness on this yeah, show. I mean, really is. Uh, I will admit, though, Ric Flair on the apron is great oh is it like sting crawling for him nate rick and him like i'm here buddy i'm here just come on keep going oh yeah. so well done and that, we saw and then coming, that hot so tag well him getting the crowd going is, is fantastic yeah, the hot but, uh, tag and flair does his strut to the ropes bounces off the ropes and just clocks sting knocks him out and all three a horseman now are just stomping and beating away at Sting itself. It is. It is Crazy. great. So anyways, Educator, why don't you break this one down? All right. So uh, we see at the start of the match, Sting and Double A begin the match. They swap a full Nelson back and forth to the point where Sting gets Arn Anderson into a full Nelson. Anderson puts his feet up on the ropes trying to get some leverage, but then Sting just drops him and he ends up doing a back bump uh, flat down on uh, into the canvas. We see Sting with a bulldog face plant to Arn Anderson and two right hands to Pillman to knock both of the horsemen down on the floor, causing them to kind of reset and regroup. At one point, we see Brian Pillman in the ring in the match, slapping Sting in the face to bait him to chase him out onto the floor. Sting does follow, but he's able to duck a clothesline attempt from Arn Anderson and ended up dropping Brian Pillman and then Anderson after the fact to foil their attempts to uh, attack him outside of the ring. We see Brian Pillman getting press slammed by Sting uh, and Pillman ends up hat recovering and cowardly running to the corner and getting a tag to double A. We see a whole lot in this match. I noticed a lot of empty seats in the upper deck as there's pan shots in the ring, but in the background, you can certainly see a lot of open seats are available. We see Anderson end up kicking uh, and forearming Sting to knock him down to try to gain the advantage. Sting ends up able to counter back. He ends up doing a double leg and a catapult to Arn Anderson into his own corner, where at this point, Brian Pillman, for whatever reason, was climbing up to the top turnbuckle. 
this catapult causes Pillman to end up getting crotched on the turnbuckle, and then Sting ends up knocking Pillman off of the turnbuckle onto the floor. Double A ends up eye-gouging Sting and then ramming Sting into Pillman's head that I had talked about uh, earlier in the preview of this match here and the commentary was just like that was great that's an old anderson trick to try to gain the advantage and then right around this time we do see uh street clothes ridden flair coming down to the ring he's got a big old bandage on tape to his forehead he ends up stripping off of his shirt and so he's now on the uh ring apron in his uh, street clothes, his pants, uh, and his belt. And he spends a lot of time constantly hiking up his pants, uh, getting ready to get into the match itself. Crowd is just absolutely going nuts as Flair is strutting back and forth and wooing to the crowd. Crowd is chanting, we want Flair. We end up seeing a unique uh, callback to the uh, Midnight Express where Double A and Brian Pillman attempt to do a rocket launcher onto Sting where Double A launches Pillman off of the top rope to do the splash onto Sting, but Sting ends up lifting his knees for Pillman to splash his knees. Double uh, A stops Sting from making the tag and ends up doing a belly-to-back suplex onto Sting to get a two-count. At one point, Brian Pillman distracts Ric Flair by baiting him around the ring to cause Ch- Flair to give, basically do a full-lap chase outside of the ring. That means he's not in the corner when Sting was there capable of doing a tag. We see Double A doing an abdominal stretch onto Sting in his corner, and Brian Pillman is yanking on his arm and his shoulder to increase the leverage as they're working down Sting. We see Pillman chopping Sting, biting Sting on the bridge of his nose. Brian Pillman ends up doing a single leg crab to Sting and eventually tags in Double A to continue to do more stomps and kicks to a down Sting, just continuously working down and brutalizing Sting. At one point, Sting is able to make a comeback, but Double A reverses an Irish whip and ends up catching Sting for his patented spine buster for a two count from referee Randy Anderson. Uh, Double A does a unique looking double leg grapevine Indian death lock and Sting is yelling at Nate. Hey, hey, Nate, I'm coming, Nate. Nate, your boy, help me. Um, Continuous, you know, continuous storytelling uh, between both teams here. We have a bear hug by Double A, and the ref ends up doing the infamous drop his hand once, drop his hand twice. On the third time, Sting is starting to recover. He does a double forearm slap over Double A's head to ring his ring his bell um, after the uh, you know attempted arm drop from the referee. Pillman is eventually tagged in. He does multiple chops to Sting. And then Pillman ends up doing a unique uh, working half Nelson rest hold in the ring itself. Sting ends up uh, ramming Double A and Pillman's head together. And all three men have dropped down to the canvas. At this point, Flair is just absolutely going nuts, begging for the tag. Sting finally makes the tag. Flair struts in, hits the ropes to a huge crowd pop. And after he hits that rope, he rebounds back and attacks Sting. And all four horse, three horsemen lay a beat down to Sting, causing the match to what I originally thought was to be thrown out. But it ends up becoming a, a DQ win for Sting and Flair for whatever reason. Sting is triple teamed by all three men. Flair ends up pulling the tape off of his forehead to show there's absolutely no injury, absolutely no harm. And at one point, Randy Anderson 
and Nick Patrick are in the ring trying to stop everything. Randy Anderson attempts to cover Sting's body, but Flair ends up stopping Randy Anderson in the back of the head a few times. It was great, great storytelling. Just the finish of how Sting and Flair end up winning by DQ just made no sense whatsoever. I say, like, we, we've we said from the beginning of talking about this match, we all saw Flair's turn coming. Even though this is a old match, everyone there live saw this turn coming. But you know what was great? I want to see Sting versus Ric Flair again at the end of this because Sting's anger at the end, just like crawling to attack Flair to get back at him, mad at himself for falling at for mad at Flair for tricking him, mad at the other horsemen, like Sting's rage and anger. I was like, oh, I want to see this. I know we've done it before, but I want to see this version of Sting just so mad at Flair, so upset with what they've done to him, wanting revenge. Like, I'm ready for that series. Now, educator, refresh me. Um, ben winds up being the fourth, right? Ben's right around World War Three time. They end up announcing Benoit as the fourth guy on a WCW Saturday Night or main event or something like that. Right around World War Three ish. Okay. All right. We follow that up with Mean Gene uh, talking with the Hotline, and once again, we're talking to uh, Flair uh, reuniting the Horsemen. Uh, then we get a backstage interview with Mike today and Lex Luger. Uh, that backstage interview, not as good as the mean Gene um, Randy Savage one from earlier in the evening. No, uh, but, but, Lex does mention his good pal and friend Sting, who he did not come out to help. Yeah, so that should uh, clue you in on the heel turn. Uh, but before we move on, why don't we take a quick little commercial break? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hello there. Uh, this is uh, Maddie Treats from the House Show Podcast. And if you're like me, your relationship with your father has changed recently. I mean, it may be on the verge of collapsing. So just remember these simple rules. No one needs to look into your eyes When the waistband is around the thighs We don't need to hear your vocal tones When you are sitting on the throne So when things start to brewin don't FaceTime when you pooing. Relationships could be ruined if you're FaceTiming while pooing. Take the time to be alone when you are sitting on the throne. Please don't answer your phone. Your location will always be known. So when things start to brewin', please don't FaceTime while 
your poem. Relationships could be ruined if you're FaceTiming while pooing. Just, just heed, heed the simple warning, guys. Follow the rules. And everything will be okay. I promise you. done with Halloween? Do you think that Thanksgiving is for pansies? Are you ready to get into the Christmas spirit, but all the Christmas music out there just isn't hard enough for a metalhead like yourself? Well, you aren't alone. You see, this holiday season, the masked library Kevin Hellions is here to save the day with the most metal holiday playlist of all time. The Masked Library proudly presents Deck the Hellions. Deck the Hellions features 20 songs sure to make you rock around the Christmas tree. You will be able to slay all day to this soundtrack. Fill those stockings, eat those cookies, Drink that milk and do some other Christmas things. You want to wear a Christmas sweater? Go ahead. You want to drink eggnog? Go ahead. No one's going to stop you because you're metal as f. Santa Claus gives way to Satan Claus this holiday season with Deck the Hellions. All right, we are back, and we get a Hawk Hogan and Giant video, uh, kind of going over the whole feud of the Giant showing up in a monster truck and running over Hogan's Harley. Oh, boy. Uh, and then we get Eric Bischoff, uh, and he's talking with Bob Chandler and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Of course, Bob Chandler is the person that the educator mentioned earlier, which was the architect of Bigfoot, if you will, um, doing Hogan's monster truck and then match number seven if you want to call it a match on the night Ugh. is our monster truck sumo match um of course this is world famous for the giant falling off the roof um to which they don't really explain how he lived what he yeah. fell on anything like that um what did you guys think of the whole presentation so I, I I don't know. Must be it's the same camera work that WWF did for the Money in the Bank pay per view and the wrestlers falling off of the building as well, but able to survive to wrestle the very next night. I don't know. Um, one of the things that bothered me about this is you know you you've got whoever it was that was explaining the instructions to both of the the giant and 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 Hogan talking about how the two vehicles are going to be attached together at the front. They're going to bring somebody in to weld the two together, uh, weld the the two, you know, 
monster trucks together at the front. And it's crazy that they the welder welds for about eight to ten seconds. And then all of a sudden, okay, yep, the, the monster trucks are now conjoined together. It's official. We can start the match. It's, it does not make any sense whatsoever. There's talk about there are these two randomly pay, placed charges, like what, dynamite sticks that are going to go off if you end up rolling over them. They're supposed to do damage to the truck. One of them does go off but causes, like, no damage whatsoever. I don't even understand the intent. Then it's explained that really it's like a tag effort because there's a second driver in each car or each monster truck because one is one one of the competitors is operating the front wheels and the gas while they their partner is actually you know turning the back wheels apparently on the monster truck, which is weird in itself. I oh gosh, this was not good. So I guess the the steering wheel and stuff that Giant and Hogan are using are not, quote, real. So you don't have two drivers. You have a main driver and a fake driver. It's more like it. Um, I will say, okay, my biggest curiosity and why I started doing, like, podcasts and shoots is I wanted to find out how they got the two trucks up on the roof. And I couldn't find anything explaining that. Like, was it a crane lifting them up? Do they actually have enough space to, like, drive around to get up there? I don't know. Uh, It had more psychology and back and forth than some of the other matches on the card, though. Like, when when Hogan's back wheels went out, I was like, oh, my gosh, he lost. I don't remember Hogan losing. Oh, both sets of wheels have to go out. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay, let's keep going here. Was it like it was it was a more back and forth match than that batch of three there earlier in the night? Yeah. So do you think. If obviously this took place now with what they do for cinematic matches, would this be better now? Like what what could you come up with in this scenario where you have two cars, a sumo wrestling cars, basically? Uh, what can you do different? Is there anything that can be done to salvage this kind of concept or segment? I don't I mean, see it. Race it, crash them into each other, have multiple ones off camera but have ones keep getting like damaged and through either the power of the dungeon of doom or the power of hulkamania it magically comes back but we all know it's actually a second vehicle yeah i mean it's just um it's fascinating to kind of watch this and like i said i remember growing up as a kid you know the giant falling off the roof and then how they play it is just so so odd where they just basically go to the ring and throw to the next match. And the only one that's really selling the severity of it is Bobby the Brain Heenan. He was so great, though. Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, he's absolutely fantastic, but uh, it's just very odd. I, I just thought the whole thing is odd. Do you have a breakdown of it, Educator? <laughs> I mean, no. How do you want to? Okay, that's my figure. So. They go back and forth. Hogan gets pushed out once. Uh, there's a second time that Hogan's pushed out where the charges go off nowhere near his truck. And then eventually he pushes giant's truck completely out. Hogan wins. There's your breakdown. (laughs) I I put as much effort into taking notes on that as what they apparently did for booking this whole show. I honestly thought you were just reading Kevin's notes. Uh, yeah, so why don't we actually just move on to match number eight then? How does that sound, guys? There we go. All right. All right, so that is the Luger, Lex Luger, taking on the Macho Man Randy Savage at match 
number eight on our card, which happens to be our semi-main event of the evening. Uh, what did you think of this one? I mean, after you show the sumo match, you're kind of like, I mean, this is really a dead match, right? Because of I what mean, just happened? kind of was to begin with anyways. I just, I don't understand in the fact that there's supposedly this huge feud that's set up for this match at, at, between Luger and Savage and, you know, so little time and we got the Jimmy Hart interference, distraction, whatever you want to call it, that leads to uh, the sudden finish and like, it's just, it's done and it's over with and we got to get time for the guys to get to the back and. Uh, so we can set up for the main event. I mean, it almost could have played better if the match started before Giant fell. So you could play off that Jimmy Hart's running out there to tell Luger and Savage, hey, something bad happened and you need to come back and help. So that's why he's out there, but he can't get the word to them. And then he ends up getting bumped and the the match ends. There's a way to make that work. But then why would you have the the Giant Hogan angle not over yet, but the match already start. So I, I don't know how to play it off. Yeah. So, um, so educator, why don't you kind of go ahead and break down this, I guess, buffer match between the two Hogan main events. Uh, so Luger comes to the ring. Savage comes to the ring. Luger and, and Savage are kind of jaw jacking back and forth. At one point you can kind of see Luger mouthing the words, you know, I'm going to break you. I'm going to take you out. So he extends his hand out to Savage you know, to try to get Savage to not commit to the match or whatnot or to stop everything from happening. Savage doesn't go for it, ends up kicking uh, Luger and then rams his head in the turnbuckle two times. Macho Man tries to do an Irish whip into the turnbuckle for, uh, and then Luger ends up just bouncing and rebounding out and does a clothesline. We see Luger ramming Savage into the turnbuckle two times. And then we see in the background Jimmy Hart now coming down to ringside and, you know, commentary is not really paying too, too much attention to what much is going on in the match. We see Luger kind of stomping down Savage in the corner, kind of choking him with his boot into the corner uh, and so on. The guys end up going outside of the ring for a few moments. There's a battle outside of the ring. At one point, Luger is kind of draped over the turnbuckle, or not the turnbuckle, the guardrail on the floor, and Savage ends up doing like a double axe handle from the ring apron, leaping across onto Luger, who's draped over the rail. The guys get back into the ring, kind of more or less just stalling for time, and then at one point, we see Jimmy Hart up on the apron. He's kind of talking to the referee, Luger goes for an Irish whip, but Randy Savage kind of reverses the Irish whip, sending Luger to crash into Jimmy Hart, kind of sort of head first. It kind of looked like it was a a weak botch or whatnot or a a weak maneuver of of a collision. But Luger ends up running into Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart kind of falls to the floor. Luger kind of stumbles back into the ring now he's front and center in the middle of the ring so savage can go to the top rope hit the big diving elbow drop off the top rope and macho man wins defeating lex luger in the middle of the ring one two three granted we got the overall story with lex and everything going on with him for the night but this whole thing with him and macho man was poorly booked from the beginning and then everyone's only concerned with what the heck's going on with giant announcers fans like no one cares about this match at all 
which is you got two former world champions that won the titles you know became world champions again after this match and no one cares about the two of them facing off against each other yeah plus the match is very quick <laughs> like overall for, yeah for what i thought it was going to be and they've been building it up you know you have the two matches and leading to the one um for having it only to be what six minutes seven minutes if like that, it just didn't it didn't even seem if it got seem... six i'd be shocked i got like it's crazy that, you know luger ends up working mang longer than both of savage's matches combined yeah yeah so um and then we go right into our main event we get michael buffer for the introductions we get hogan with jimmy hart out first um then we get the giant coming out with the taskmaster at this point my note is what was the point of the sumo trucks on the roof like what once again, why did they have this? And then you got this angle where he falls off the roof and nothing happens to Not, him. Like nothing, he comes out no without a scratch. That you know, if he got hurt, if he got injured, no explanation whatsoever. It's just poor, poor execution. And then, of course, you know when you get to the match. Okay, and I don't. Okay, it's Giants' first match, so. When you're thinking someone that's going to carry you in a first match, are you thinking Hulk Hogan? No. no. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, I mean, it, uh, Giant's out there doing his best. Um, Jimmy Hart turns, which has no weight to it because we literally have seen. Th- because not only did Jimmy Hart turn on the card, let's let's go through our notes here. Ric Flair turns on the card. Lex Luger turns on the card. Yeah. <laughs> like... There's no weight to anything. Everything that happens just happens and it's fleeting and then it's gone. It's it's absurd. I I don't know. Guys. I'm starting towards the end. I'm not doing a full breakdown of this one. <laughs> There's no way. You don't want to do bear hug, chop, bear hug, chop, nah, kick. And we're getting to the second the round break. of bear hugs. My one question, though, is early in the match, Giant gets thrown over the top ropes and falls. Right. Was he supposed to land on his feet there? I'm wondering if he does because he does awkwardly stumble when his feet mm. hit the ground. Because there's a moment later when when Hogan does the body slam to him, which I thought they would get a bigger pop for it, but Giant has already fallen. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like right. that would have been the first time off his feet. Right. So I thought that was interesting watching that, but... Yeah, Educator, why don't you go ahead and break this one down? Well, we're going to break it down towards the end as the Giant returns to a second standing bear hug on Hogan. Hogan ends up doing about eight or nine punches to break away. The crowd is kind of rallying behind Hogan, counting the punches as he's, uh, you know, trying to break away. Hogan ends up bouncing off the ropes only for the Giant to kind of catch him by the throat to set up for a choke slam. He does hit his choke slam. But Hogan ends up kicking out at a two count from referee Randy Anderson, and he starts his typical Hulkster buildup, his Hulk up. Hogan does the big three punches, does the Irish whip into the ropes, and ends up hitting the big boot, but the giant is still standing. Hogan does an eye rake and then big body slam to the giant. Hogan ends up bouncing off of the ropes and does his leg drop. Now, right about the time where Hogan ends up hitting the ropes to do his leg drop, we see Jimmy Hart climb on the apron, and then the camera kind of cuts to a different angle 
But apparently Jimmy Hart has the championship belt in his hands and he swings the belt and actually hits Randy Anderson, knocking Randy Anderson down so that now he can't count for the three count for against the giant for Hogan. So Hogan, unbeknownst to this, is like, what's going on? Why is the ref down? He calls Jimmy Hart into the ring, and the two of them, you know, Jimmy Hart is now acting, even though a lot of the crowd is, like, pointing to Hogan, yelling at Hogan, hey, Jimmy Hart knocked him down. So Jimmy Hart tries to help revive with Hogan, the referee, and ends up not being very, very successful. So Jimmy ends up grabbing the championship belt and ends up attacking Hogan in the back, swinging the belt and hitting Hogan in the back with the belt. And then the giant now recovers from the big leg drop and ends up getting up and putting Hogan back into the bear hug again. Then we hear the crowd pop and Luger and Randy Savage are kind of running down as to you what you would think would be to make a save to help Hogan. Uh, but Jimmy Hart kind of swings the belt again at Randy Savage. Also, the Taskmaster is now in the ring, kind of beating on Hogan as well. Jimmy Hart ends up swinging the belt at Savage and, and you know, working Randy Savage, which I thought was kind of weird. Uh, and Randy Savage ends up getting down, uh, gets knocked down some way, somehow. And then we get the heel turn from Luger as Luger starts stomping on Savage committing to his role as supposedly being a member of the Dungeon of Doom, anti-Hogan, and so on. And then we get the brisk walk-in, not a run-in, but more of a brisk walk-in of the Yeti coming into the ring and does what you know you may end up having to bleep out is the bear-hug rape of Hulk Hogan from behind. I don't know why they couldn't figure out some other maneuver to do. But him just basically bear-hugging both the Giant and Hogan by wrapping his arms around and sandwiching Hogan in between, this was just absolutely awful. We see Luger after Hogan has been dropped down. Luger ends up picking up Hogan, putting Hogan in the torture rack, shaking him up and down. He ends up dropping Hogan with the torture rack. And then the Giant helps Luger pick up Randy Savage and put Randy Savage into the torture rack as well. And then in the match, at the end, we end up seeing the Giant having his hand raised from uh, the now-recovered referee, Randy Anderson. The Giant has grabbed the championship belt. It's not at all explained whether or not he is the champion here on the pay-per-view. But the Giant is declared the winner, and I would say I guess it is the result of the fact that Jimmy Hart technically acting as the manager of Hulk Hogan by swinging the belt and knocking down the referee on Hogan's behalf or interfering uh, and attacking the referee and being the manager of Hulk Hogan, that's what caused the DQ against Hogan and therefore caused the Giant to win. The, the match itself. All right. So the next night on Nitro, um, Giant comes out. He's wearing the title. Uh, I think he has a squash match. Mean Gene interviews him at then, him and Taskmaster and Jimmy Hart. And Giant's just like, I'm the champ. I'm the champ. A week after that, 
they bring in a member of the WCW Championship Committee who, and Jimmy Hart finally cuts a longer promo as well. So Jimmy Hart says that as Hogan's manager, he had power of attorney. And while Hogan's filming movies, he and Kevin Sullivan hatched their plan. Jimmy Hart put in a clause that the title can change by disqualification. So because Jimmy Hart hit the referee while still Hogan's manager, therefore Hogan was the one disqualified, therefore Giant gets the title. And on this Nitro where they explain it, they also at the same time strip Giant of the title, saying that that's not a legitimate, you know, you were champ, but now you're not anymore, that's not legitimate, and they put the title up for grabs for whoever wins the 60-man World War Three pay-per-view. And that's how they explain all that. The only thing I'll comment on for the match is Giant pulled out a lot, best he could for first match. Imagine what he could have done if anyone did something crazy, like trained him how to wrestle. The fact he didn't know what to do until they, he got to WWE and they're like, we'll do this. And he's like, no one's ever taught me how. You've been wrestling for years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no one's ever done. And they eventually send him down to Ohio Valley under the guise of him losing weight. But he's certainly down there. He's getting some formalized training. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's too bad. It was just a matter of let's rush, rush, you know, Paul White, make him a prominent star without any build. And the thing is, they had the power plant. I'm pretty sure that was up and going by this point. Yeah. I just, I don't know. The, the odd thing is there is so much going on in this main event. So you get the storyline with Jimmy Hart turning, right? Which should be bigger than what it is. Luger turning is just whatever. It's just there. The Yeti coming out is really whatever <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, because I I don't, I don't understand what their future was for the Yeti, like what they thought would happen at the next pay-per-view at world war three at Starcade. Like what they, would they get a match Yeti versus Hogan? No, I, they ended up abandoning this gimmick. In fact, the character Ron Reese, he's one of the giants in the Battle Royal, but when he comes out, he's no longer in the Yeti garb. He is announced as being the Yeti, but he's in the super black ninja outfit. It's so... <laughs> it's great. It, and, of course, you got the whole thing with the world title being changed. Right. Which you don't know if that's the case, if... It's just a cluster. It really is. I mean, there is no, they're, they're just throwing everything against the wall and hoping something sticks. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, like I, like I said earlier, there was a thing where Bischoff said Diamond Dallas Page has too many gimmicks going. You want to talk about too many gimmicks going? That's this main event. It's, uh, it's something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, it left me speechless watching it because I'm just like, one, I knew it was wrestle crap to begin with, but then when you actually rewatch it, and you have more of a, 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 you know, a more sophisticated eye towards professional wrestling now, um, it just yeah sticks out like a sore thumb to me. Not good at all. Not not good, and I still don't understand the monster trucks. <laughs> no, I don't, get, I don't get it at all. Ten but. seconds of welding was enough, brother. Since I think I worked for that guy. Oh, gosh. 10 seconds of welding? Yeah. Yeah, that's the job done. <laughs> so, anyways, I think that's going to do it for Halloween Havoc 1995. Anything you guys want to add? 
<laughs> I can't imagine how we're going to talk about match of the night or where it ranks. I, I, so there's I, nothing. I got my, nothing I, you want to add, Kevin? No, no. I, I, I got ideas in my head for how this is going to play out. Yeah, so do I. All right, so uh, obviously there's going to be nothing that breaks the top five, correct? I correct. can't see it. I mean, if we had to pick a match of the night, I would go with the DDP Johnny B. Bad match. But yeah. I don't, that's not going to scrape the top five. No, it's not top five, but it's best match of the night. Yeah. All right. So our top five will stay the same. Of course, number one, still the Nasty Boys versus the Steiner Brothers. Uh, number two was Hogan versus Ric Flair in the cage. Number three, number three is Brian Pillman versus Lex Luger. Uh, number four was beautiful Bobby Eaton versus uh, Terrence Taylor. And then number five is Lex Luger versus Ron Simmons in the two out of three falls match. And it's time to rank this Halloween Havoc. Let's start from the bottom and work our way to the top. Is this better than Halloween Havoc 1992? No. Yeah, I mean, if either of you wanted to argue for putting it second to last, I would hear it, but I think it's last. Absolutely not. It's last. It's not even campy fun. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Like I am good. Like I, as I, like I said, this is probably the most infamous Halloween Havoc, just from what I remember and everything, and. I revisited once. It's not going to be something I revisit again for a very long time. I'm good. Yeah. I'm actually sure. I don't. Yeah. Just what a cluster this was and not, not at all. Nothing about this is like mildly amusing or over, you know, redeeming and, and what the efforts were attempting to be for the time. And it does not, does not do well with age either. It was. I, I'm glad I watched it this one time, but I think I'm good. Yeah, I think that's all of us. We're all just kind of. Um, I think we're all just we're we're good on that. Uh, I do have one last question that I just thought of. Is of course this was the debut match for the Giant. Is this a better debut than Mark Henry at the In Your House series? Yes, I think so, because certainly as limited as what both guys were to me i saw much bigger potential in the giant in his efforts with hogan than mark henry and his efforts with uh jerry lawler yeah and also giant comes across as an attraction that you would pay money to see mark right across as just a big dude all right so that's going to do it for us at the haunted house show this week join us next week for halloween havoc 1996 a night of terror and suspense i'm excited because we're back in vegas we're finally in vegas because i know they have a lot of events that take place there and of course our main event for that is the nwo's hollywood hawk hogan taking on randy macho man savage for the wcw world heavyweight championship with miss elizabeth in a neutral corner Ooh. So we will see what comes of that pay-per-view. Very excited for that. Guys. Didn't I we see got, that you know. in 1989 at WrestleMania 5? I was just thinking that, too. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So, uh, well, we're just reliving all the gimmicks. Let's <laughs> just throw them all. Um, 
We will be back. And next week, guys, we have a special surprise for you. A big announcement next week. So you got to tune in for that. All right. Educator, what do you want to say to everyone out there? I want to say thank you, everybody, for tuning in, giving us a listen. Uh, I'm looking forward to some of the projects that we have tentatively lined up, and we're hoping that you'll be interested in finding out what these projects are in the near future. want to say thank you to uh, my two colleagues here. As always, I love the weekly gatherings and being able to reminisce about retro lore from the past. want to say thank you, as always, to the Retro Network for their support, their sponsorship, and giving us the opportunity to be a part of their platform and uh, contributing, giving us the ability to contribute to their site. Yeah, and I always just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Um, it's always a pleasure to bring you guys these Halloween Havocs. Uh, this one, not good though. Halloween Havoc 1995, not good. But come back for 96 next week. Of course, we have the big announcement. And as always, click the link in the show notes. Save 15% off your item at fun.com oh yeah follow me on twitter at maddie trades and mr masked library kevin hellions why don't you take us home all right another great show tonight guys not a good pay-per-view but a good show by us thank you to retro network for hosting us thank you to wwe network for the content thank you to my two co-hosts here thank you to richard reader and jason gross for our logo you can follow us across the internet at trn house show you can follow me at Mast Library and MassLibrary.com is my personal blog. You can follow Matt, like you said, at Maddie Treats. Educators think far away from the internet. He might be the smartest one of us all for doing so. Uh, thank you to all of our friends. Hey, special thing for Patreon subscribers to my blog. I'm putting up all of my notes on there. So if you enjoy the hot tag of the week, you can see all of my notes right there on Patreon. And uh, guys, I just want to say for all of our listeners here, if you're looking for more hot young talent like was on this show, you can't do any better than 240-somethings and 130-something discussing 20-year-old wrestling shows. And just so you guys know, do not Google search Kevin Hot Tag <laughs> and Matt. Just throwing that out there. You don't know what will come up. <laughs> it looks a lot like the giant and the Yeti did Hogan. Yeah. Put those notes on OnlyFans. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.